0: Good morning, men. What a privilege it is to be here with you this morning. Like Dave already said, I am delighted that this room is full of men. I'm so excited to be here with you. Uh, Let me pray uh, for our time, and then we'll jump right in. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we pray, and in whom we have our life established in you both now and forevermore. We ask, Father, that by your mercy and your grace and your spirit working here through your word and in our hearts that you would accomplish your purposes for the sake of Christ's eternal glory, for his praise, and for our good in him. And It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you should have uh, some notes pages in front of you. There be a few, few fill-ins. On that, but let's just start with this quote from 2 Timothy. I'm going to start a little ahead of where it picks up on your pages. Paul says to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So you'll see on your handouts this question How well do you know the scriptures? How well do you know the scriptures? We're going to actually take a Bible quiz to start off this morning. I heard some comments. Somebody said I didn't have a chance to study. (laughs) Right. I want you to feel the weight of it a little bit. Does it make you a little bit nervous? We're going to take a Bible quiz. We're going to ask some questions, and it's going to reveal how well do you know the Scriptures? I mean, if we ask the question and simply leave it at that, we might all say, I know the scriptures pretty well. How well do you know the scriptures? So you've got lines there with numbers next to them, and I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. So write in your answers, and then we will grade our our quiz. Number one, the birth of Jesus is described in which of the four gospels? The birth of Jesus is described in which of the four Gospels? Write down your answer in the space provided. Moving on, number two. Who said these words? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Who said these words? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Bonus, though I've only got a mint in my pocket, if you can tell me not only who said that, but who they said it to. Number three, in his conversation with Martha after Lazarus had died, how did Jesus identify himself to Martha? How did he identify himself? Number four, I'll give you a hint on number four. Ryan just read it, and he and I had not coordinated this, so maybe that helps you. Which book of the Bible says of Christ that in everything he might be preeminent? Were you listening to what Ryan? <laughs> that in everything he might be preeminent? And then number five, where does Paul state these words? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Where do we find that in the Bible? So how'd you do? I think you did. Number one. The birth of Jesus is described in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. So just grade yourself there. Matthew and Luke, this is honor system. From the Old Testament, who says man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart? Does anybody know that? Who's, who said it? God said it. Who did he say it to? Said it to Samuel. Good. The Lord said those words to Samuel. Okay, number three, in his conversation with Martha after Lazarus had died, how did Jesus identify himself? Does anybody know? I am the resurrection and the life. Her brother is dead. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So which book of the Bible says of Christ that in everything he might be preeminent? Number four. You all caught that. <laughs> Good job, Ryan. Way to go. All right, number five. Where does Paul state, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures? First Corinthians. Anybody know the chapter? Fifteen. I, I, I mean, the apostle the one who wrote the majority of the New Testament, says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. We should know this. We should know where this is in our Bibles. Again, how did you do? How well do you know the scriptures? Brothers, I want you to hear this loud and clear. As gospel men... We must know our Bibles. Gospel men are men who know their Bibles. That may be the first fill-in on your handout. Gospel men are men who know their Bibles. We must be men of the book. And the only way for us to grow into a proper worldview is through the scriptures. This is what I hope to encourage us in and challenge us to this morning. 19th century American poet John Godfrey Sachs is most remembered for his poem, The Blind Man and the Elephant. It was based on his version of an ancient Indian fable about six blind men who were examining an elephant. By touching only part of the elephant, each blind man arrived at a different conclusion of what an elephant was like. Feeling the animal's huge side, one of them said it was like a wall. Another touched its tusk and thought it was like a spear. Holding on to its trunk, one blind man said the elephant was like a snake. Touching one of its legs, another believed it was like a tree. Grasping one of its ears, still another concluded it was like a fan. And grabbing its tail, one of the blind men thought the elephant was like a rope. The poem concludes this way. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. You see, each one of the blind men could see in part, but their understanding was ultimately wrong, and therefore it was corrupt. Each one had a bankrupt understanding due to their limited viewpoint and interpreted the whole of reality through their own faulty view. We all look at our world from a limited standpoint. We are finite. The part of reality that we see shapes our view of what is true. It shapes our worldview. And we interpret our world through this faulty grid. As gospel men, we also know that sin has corrupted our view of everything. So we have the dual problem of a limited view and the corruption of sin. Our worldview is broken. Hear that. Your worldview is broken and is not trustworthy. Trustworthy. So for our purposes this morning, I'm going to simply define worldview as your framework for understanding reality. Put another way, it is the lens or grid through which you interpret life. And the remaining time, I'm going to attempt to show you that the only proper and right way to understand life in its most fundamental way is through the revelation of God in the scriptures in the word made flesh, and through life in him. Put another way, I hope to show you that the only right way to interpret life at the level of worldview is through the Bible and God's gracious saving work operating in your life. The hope for each of us as blind men, and the hope for any human person is that the one who created the elephant and the world has no limits to his understanding. And he has graciously revealed his understanding and himself to us in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus Christ. We will always be finite and limited. So we will always need to look to him for understanding. And we will need to trust him because his worldview is altogether right. Our worldviews by his grace can mature and improve as he uses his word to sanctify us in Christ. But we will always be dependent upon him for a proper worldview and to become who he intended for us to be. I'm not going to take us this morning on a journey through the various major worldviews like monotheism and deism and naturalism and existentialism, pantheism, nihilism. Each of these makes its own attempt to answer some of life's most important and heartfelt questions. Like, what is real? Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? What is the basis for my values? What does the future hold? A study of these various worldviews might be a worthwhile investment of time, but again, we're not going to invest that time now. Instead, I want to take you on a brief journey through a Psalm of David and show you what is absolutely necessary for you to grow in your right understanding of life and all that exists. So open your Bibles to Psalm 19. The heading at the top of this psalm says to the choirmaster, A Psalm of David. I titled this message, His Voice and Our Redemption How the Word of God Remakes Us and Our Worldview. And again, on your sheet of paper, you'll have some fill ins under Psalm 19. The first one is Creation Speaks with a Pervasive Voice. Verses 1 through 6, creation speaks with a pervasive voice. So follow along as I read these six verses. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. In this first section, like a beautiful song, it draws our gaze upward to the skies. Think about the vast array of the heavenly bodies, the moons, the stars, the planets in their courses. Think about how expansive they are, the myriads upon myriads of galaxies, each with billions and billions of stars. Consider black holes, comets, asteroids, and all that the heavens contain. How vast is the sum of them? But the question for us is, what is its message? What is it saying? Why is there so much of it? Why is there so much space? Is its message about itself? About its own grandeur and glory? Most certainly it is not. It is about the one who has fashioned it all. It is about the one who upholds it all by the power of his word. The heavens are not drawing attention to themselves, but like a beautiful garden, it shows forth its beauty, but the gardener is the one who is truly glorious. The message of the skies is a resounding and pervasive message about the glory of God. This is its voice. Notice in verse 2 that the speech from creation goes out 24-7. It never ceases to declare its message. Its voice continues day and night from the dawn of creation until this very day. It's like a never-ending chorus of words proclaiming, All glory be to God, our Creator. Notice also in the third and fourth verse that this voice is heard everywhere. It goes out to the ends of the earth declaring this message Glory be to God. And then the last two verses of this section wrap up by zooming in on the most glorious of the heavenly bodies, at least from our vantage point, the sun. All other lights in the sky fade out of sight under its bright glory. And it charts its course day after day, week after week, month after month, like a bridegroom that has come out of its chamber, like a strong man running his course with joy. There's nothing hidden from the radiance of the sun. But this glorious celestial feature does not call attention to itself. For itself. Even it. The most glorious thing that we behold in the sky. Says all glory be to my maker. And my sustainer. All glory be. To God. Do we view. Our world this way. This voice of creation is so pervasive. And loud and clear. That all are accountable to its message. Everyone is without excuse in hearing this voice. Paul confirms this in Romans chapter one, where he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. But even with all of this resounding speech, what good comes to the deaf man that cannot hear its speech? Or what good is the sun to the blind man who cannot take in its radiant beams of light? Or what good does any of it do for a dead man? You see, brothers, another voice, a better voice, a more perfect voice, must unstop our ears and give us sight, for creation's loud voice cannot raise the dead. So, creation, according to David in the first six verses, speaks with a pervasive voice. We should all hear it, but Scripture speaks with an infinitely better voice. So, your second full in is Scripture. Speaks with an infinitely better voice. Scripture speaks with an infinitely better voice. Let's continue reading in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. So this next section begins with a six-part declaration about the word of God. For David, this was obviously limited to the portion of scripture available to him, namely the Torah. And this portion and the descriptions are exceedingly great from the voice of the psalmist. We, however, can understand this in reference to the whole of Scriptures, to the entire doctrine of God. In verses 7 through 9, we see six names for the Word of God. We also see six descriptions of its nature. And then finally, six divinely appointed effects. Notice first that in each notice first that in each of the six names, the law, testimony precepts, commandment, fear, rules, that they all have their origin in the Lord. This is no small matter, so we must not overlook this detail. Remember, in David's opening part of this psalm, he says that the heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord, the one who upholds everything. He's made everything. He is glorious. David is now saying The voice of the heavens that tell of the glory of this Creator, this is His voice. This is His Word. We must not miss this point. Notice also that these are simply different ways to refer to God's Word. The repetition of this portion of this psalm makes it explicitly clear what David is describing. This is the voice of the Creator. And this voice is infinitely better than the voice of creation. How much better, we might ask? Well, the answer comes in the descriptions of the nature of God's word and then in its divinely appointed effects. So David next describes the nature of the word with six descriptions. He says the word of God is perfect without flaw, revealing the whole of God's love, grace, and gospel. He says it's sure. It's plain. It's decided. It's infallible. It can be counted on entirely. David also says it's right. It's morally righteous. It is without blemish. David says God's word is pure. There is no mixture of error that defiles it, nor stain of sin that pollutes it. It is pure. It is clean, free from corruption. It is true, just, and truthful, each part of it and the whole of it. Here, David stacks up description after description with many overlapping ideas that may best be summed up in the first description. That is, the word of God is perfect. Brothers, there is nothing like God's gracious revelation of himself and what we find in his word. There's nothing like it. Think about your life. What do you know that's perfect? David says, God's word is perfect. And I heard somebody say, God is perfect. Amen. So finally, this grouping of six descriptions of God's word turns to the divinely appointed effects of his word on his people, on his saints. This is the portion where his awesome word gets very personal for David and for us. Now we see that God's word ushers in transformative power and calls us to faith and obedience. So listen to these divinely appointed effects. God's word revives the soul. It literally means makes alive again, restores us to God. David is talking here in the Old Testament about new birth. But Jesus refers to, in John chapter 3, this is new birth. This is the first divine effect of God's word. It moves us from death to life. It revives our souls. The scripture reveals our need and then meets that need in the gospel of God, in the person and work of his son, Jesus only the Word of God does this by the Spirit. So The Word revives the soul. The Word rejoices the heart. It can be counted on, and it makes our hearts rejoice. It can be trusted. Things that can be trusted are joy-producing. It's God's Word that produces this joy in the person whose soul has been revived by God. It also makes wise the simple. The scripture, David says, is a guide to life. Remember we said our worldview is broken, but his view of everything is not broken. And he has graciously revealed it to us in his word. So we, though we be unwise, can be made wise. We, though we be simple, can be wise through the scripture, through the word of God and his power to transform us. It enlightens our eyes. Because the word is pure, it gives light to the eyes. It's not mixed with error, so that you can see brightly. Psalm 119 says, The word of God is like a lamp unto our feet. Left to ourselves, we stumble around in the darkness, but God has given us his word, and it enlightens our eyes, and it helps us to see and to perceive rightly and clearly. There's safety in this. God's word endures forever, David says. Something that is clean is not decaying or decomposing, so it lasts. Isaiah 40 says the word of the Lord endures forever. Forever. Endures forever. It is never out of date. God's word is lasting. It's never out of date and can be trusted. And finally, David says it's righteous altogether. It never needs to be doubted or questioned. His words are altogether right. We can understand what is right through God's word. David says there's nothing like the word of God. There's nothing more needed and necessary for life, including a proper view of God, the world, the unseen realities, the things that we do not perceive with our eyes or our senses, and a right view of ourselves. Another way of saying this is there's nothing more necessary than God's word for a right worldview. Now, David shifts here in this section in verse 10. He says, God's word is more desirable than gold, sweeter than honey. His emphasis moves from the word being true to the word being a treasure. David employs the most excellent descriptors of the desirability of God's word to the child of God. Again, he's saying, it is a treasure. Is it your treasure? Is it really? Is it your treasure? Consider this. You would never say something like this. This is my favorite food or my favorite meal, and that's why I never eat it. Or you wouldn't say, the word of God is so trustworthy, that's why I never read it. Spend time there. Or I love it so much that I give it a little attention from time to time. Is it your treasure? Is it really your treasure? David closes this section by acknowledging his needs and the warnings that God's voice brings, and that there is great reward in the keeping of God's word. These are ongoing benefits and are part of the Lord's keeping of us, his servants, keeping of David. We need the warnings of the word, and we need to obey it in faith. It warns us, and it leads us to reward. Most notably, it leads us to God himself. Sin does the opposite. So David recognizes his needs and the warnings of God's word. So this second section, scripture speaks an infinitely better voice. So let's hear David's response to this voice. Your third fill in. As the psalmist speaks with a redeemed voice. The psalmist speaks with a redeemed voice. Continuing in this final section, beginning in verse 12 Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Brothers, this final section of David's psalm is critically important for us. Here, David is operating out of his identity as a gospel man. His hope, his life, and faith are in God, his Redeemer. He looks forward. We look back. He looks forward to the revelation of the Christ. But David, as a gospel man, hopes in the Lord. This is his confidence. If you are a gospel man, then his heart and plea here is a model for you. Now, I must pause here. If you are not a gospel man and you are in this room this morning, or you're unsure about this, then I want to call you to consider that there is a God, the God that the heavens are declaring the God who has revealed himself in his word, the God who has revealed himself through the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the word incarnate, the word become flesh. The scriptures state that we were made by him and each of us is under his authority. Each of us in our nature and in our activity have rebelled against this creator. The Bible calls this sin. We've made ourselves and set ourselves as enemies of our creator and are therefore under his judgment. The judgment that he has determined, which is right, is death. Spiritual death and separation from him forever in a place of everlasting punishment called hell. We have created this problem, and we have no ability in ourselves to fix this problem And this is profoundly bad news. We must hear this. But God, the creator, the one whom David sings his praise in Psalm 19, he is rich in mercy and has sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life, different than every one of ours, without sin, without blemish, and to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins this is spectacularly good news that what we are unable to do, God provides for us in his son, Jesus. So for us, we must turn from our sins to God. We must trust Jesus to pay for our sins and offer us his own righteousness as a free gift of his grace in order to have our souls restored and made alive again unto God. If this is new to you in this room, then please discuss this with your table leader today. Or see me after the seminar today. It would be my joy to talk to you about this. Turn from your sin. Turn to God. Put all of your trust in his son, Jesus, and you shall have your sins forgiven in the hope of eternal life with God. Now, let us turn back our attention as gospel men to David here in this last section, where David begins to speak. David begins to respond to this word. We have an infinitely better voice, the voice of God in his word. And now David begins to respond. Really, he makes a plea. And his confidence, again, is in the one who he identifies as his rock and his redeemer, David's hope, David's ability to make this plea is in God, his Savior. The scriptures reveal this Savior in the Gospel of John as the Word made flesh. This Redeemer is Jesus. And David, in his Gospel man, identity, and security, he pleads with God in this final section. He pleads with the Lord to make him pure like the Word is pure. In effect, David is saying, cleanse me from all my sin that I may be pure like your word, like you. No one asks a surgeon to get half of the cancer or says, don't tell me about all of it because it will make me feel bad. No, David is saying to God, this one whose voice he is hearing, get all of it. Clean me thoroughly, all the way. Because of what your word is and does, do that in me. And David is already in this confidence of his gospel identity, declared righteous. But he is not righteous yet. And so he's saying, clean me. Make every part of me holy. Holy. David's plea might be summarized in this way. O Lord, let your word do your deep cleansing work in me as I rest in you, my rock and my redeemer. The famous 20th century Welsh minister Martin Lloyd-Jones says, If you think you can get by with five minutes of reading the Bible and a quick prayer each day, then you do not know what the wiles of the devil are. And I would add, nor the perverseness and corrupting power of remaining sin. In God's people, not for the unbeliever, this is a gospel men's seminar. In us, five minutes a day won't do it. Are you, brothers, resting confidently in your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ? And then are you seeking His deep transformative work in your life through His Word? Is your mind being renewed? Is your heart being renewed? Is your worldview being transformed? Do you know His Word? Do you know all the things that he accomplishes in the life of his people through his word? Are you diligently seeking his sanctifying work in your life? You can be confident. All of your sins, every decree against you, the Lord Jesus has nailed to the cross. You can be confident in your gospel identity. And in that confidence, you can come into the light, like David, and invite the Lord. Show me my hidden sins. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Make every part of me, my inside and my outside, pleasing in your sight. Use your word to transform me. Get it all out. Oh, Lord. Let your word do your deep cleansing work in me as I rest in you, my rock and my redeemer. Started with a question How well do you know the scriptures? They are the primary means the Spirit uses to remake our lives, including our worldview. We must be men of the book. And in the confidence of the gospel and our union with Christ, let us say again like David, O oh Lord, let your word do a deep cleansing work in me as I rest in you, my rock and my redeemer. David says the heavens declare the glory of God, their creator. The word glorifies and magnifies the Lord. It is perfect. You are gospel men by the grace of God. And your life is intended to glorify him as well. Is this how you view your life? Is this your worldview? Do you see your need daily for God's word? In his work of grace to fashion you after the image of his Son. Jesus glorified the Father on the earth, and by God's wonderful grace and love, we had the privilege of becoming like him. He does this primarily by his Spirit, whom he has placed to live inside of us, and through his Word. We must be men of the Word. May Christ be glorified as He conforms us to His own image through the Word of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a glorious and humbling truth that we who are dead in our trespasses and sins, but You, because of the mercy that You have and the love that You have, have made us alive together in Christ. And not for the purpose of remaining as we are, but for the express purpose of you being glorified as you conform us to the image of your Son. Lord, may you move us this morning and all the days of our lives to be men of your word, to give attention, diligent attention to hearing your voice, knowing that we are desperately dependent upon your voice to understand you rightly, to behold and see the glory of your son, to know the presence of your spirit at working in us, to know future hope and future glory, to understand our world right, to understand other sinners correctly, to know the gospel of your grace and to know the charge to be heralds of this gospel. Lord, may you work in us just as you work in in creation to declare your glory. May we proclaim the glory of Christ. May we know him through your word. May he become our great treasure. And may our lives redound to his glory, both now and forevermore. You will do this. Accomplish it for his sake. We pray in Christ's name.